So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ is God's power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The second reading is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 22, and that's on page 1083. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to him by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven." Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This is the word of the Lord. So we're very thankful that this uh, last couple of weeks we've had over 100 questions being asked about God. Um, My favorite was, what are eyebrows for? You could ask God one question. I think it's a wasted question. Uh, Unfortunately, only one person asked that, so we're not going to deal with it in a sermon, sadly. I think it's something to do with sweat and your eyes. I'm not sure. Um, But tonight's question is, God, how do I know you exist? That is a good question, right? A good place for us to start. Because it's it's massively important, isn't it? If God exists, that changes everything. Someone once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God even if we think he doesn't exist, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's probably true. Before we dive into this topic, though, I want to make two uh, general remarks before we get started. The first is this. It's a very general question. God, how do I know you exist? Which God? Zeus, Krishna, Mother Earth, the whole lot? See, frankly, I don't believe Zeus or Krishna exist as such. I'll just lay that out there. In fact, a whole lot of people tell me I don't believe in God, and I say to them, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Tell me about this God that you don't believe in. 
And invariably, they, they d- describe a God to me, and I say, I don't believe in that God either. What I'm trying to say is this. Tonight, we're, we're doing something much more specific than just God. Um, I'm, I'm trying to show that the God of the Bible exists. That's point one. Uh, the second thing is this. The Bible says we can do a whole lot more than just know God exists. The Bible says we can know God. And not like you know your eBay password. I hope you remember it. Um, but we can know him personally. And not like we know Tony Abbott, who's a person. Not that kind of distance, but we can actually know him like we know a friend. So I figure if I can convince you that you can know God like a friend, then the question of his existence becomes a non-issue. Do you see what I mean? That's, that's roughly where we're kind of going. God's existence, knowing God, and not just God generally, but the God of the Bible. That's where we're going. So I'm going to try to say uh, three things this evening. Uh, the first is this. The universe can't show us God conclusively, but it does give us hints. The second thing is, Jesus shows us God conclusively. And the third thing I want to say is, the biggest roadblock to us believing in God is our hearts. My aim in all this uh, is not a great aim that you'll suddenly believe in God and all the rest. I just am hoping by the end of this that you'll be willing to check out Jesus. There it is. That's what we're going to say. So let's get started. The first point is this. The universe can't show you God conclusively, but it does give you hints. If you're here this evening and you're thinking, I think it would be very hard to even know that there is a God. If that's what you're thinking, the Bible agrees with you. So that second reading uh, that Chris read to us says that God is invisible. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. How are you going to get to know this guy if you can't even see him? In fact, the Bible goes a step further than that. It says, God is in another dimension. He's not just invisible, he's in heaven. By which he doesn't mean, you know, the pretty place you go after you die. It's another dimension where God is and we are not. How are we going to know he exists or even get to know him if he's off in another dimension? This is kind of like what the philosopher Immanuel Kant was getting at when, when he talked about the division between the phenomenal world and the noumenal world, um, which might sound a bit nerdy, but it's very, very simple. It's just the phenomenal world is, is the world of the stuff around you, the things you can know and touch and feel and sense, like the chair you're sitting on, the person next to you, your heartbeat, a dog. It's the world where science can operate. And then there's the noumenal world over here, which is, it's, the world, it's that kind of realm where you can't get at stuff. You can't sense it. There's nothing, none of our cap- capabilities can actually get it. Things like God are here. It's this realm where science can't really operate because it's got nothing to work with. Which is why I think it's ridiculous to say science has disproved God. Have you heard that said? Science has disproved God. How? When did some people from the phenomenal realm come over to the noumenal realm with their kind of calipers and machines and kind of test and run their experiments? Do you know what I mean? I'm not anti-science. I'm like a lapsed physicist myself. Um, It just doesn't work. It's the wrong tool. If I've lost you already, this is where we're at. God is invisible. If you think it's going to be tricky to get to know God, 
You're dead, right? He's in heaven. The Bible keeps saying that. He's in heaven, another dimension. How are we going to get to know him? But this universe we can look at, this phenomenal world, it should give us hints. Use your imagination with me for a second. I want you to imagine that this phenomenal world around here, the world of things you can touch and sense, is a house. Four walls, it's just a house. And you've been told that this house, what's inside this house, is all there is. There's nothing else. And you believe that. It's just these four walls, that's it. And yet, you keep finding each day that the eastern wall, sorry, the eastern wall of the house heats up every morning and then cools down. And then the western wall heats up. And you think, why is that? That doesn't seem to be coming from inside the house. And then you start hearing sounds which sound like they're coming from outside the house. And then you start finding these gardening implements lying around the place. And you're thinking, what are these doing here if there's nothing outside the house? You start thinking, maybe there is something outside the house. This might sound strange, but friends, this is the experience of many people in this world. They find things in this world that they can't explain if it's just this world. Things like the things Elaine was mentioning. Things like human rights and the fact that our blood boils when women and children are treated like they're worthless. Where's that from? The fact that we actually value and commend self-sacrifice. That doesn't come from survival of the fittest. The fact that we have this sense that that there's meaning and significance in this world, that the fact that we love beauty and we kind of agree generally about what is beautiful and fitting, the fact that there isn't just moral relativity, but some things are right and wrong and we agree on that, or just the sense of religion and spirituality that we can't seem to escape. Most people have this sense, even the most surprising people. Have you ever heard of Bertrand Russell? He's one of the greatest atheists of the 20th century. After a visit to an ancient Byzantine church in Greece, he wrote this. I realized then that the Christian outlook had a firmer hold upon me than I'd imagined. I realized with some astonishment that I myself am powerfully affected by this sense in my feelings, though not in my beliefs. The hint that's really getting me at the moment is, is our brains. I might have, might have mentioned this to you before. You see, I, I, my, my brain seems to be relatively rational most of the time. I seem to be able to get at truth. But if my mind and your mind are just the result of evolutionary processes, just the result of survival of the fittest, then your mind is totally wired for one thing, right? Survival. Correct? So how do you know that you're actually engaging with what is true? With what's actually real? Because what is real doesn't always help you with survival. The atheist John Gray actually agrees with this. He says, the human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. That's a bit disturbing, isn't it? That your mind can't actually access the truth. Why are we even having this discussion? Why does this, this guy, John Gray, even write books? Charles Darwin agrees. 
he once wrote to a friend, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which is developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or are at all trustworthy. Is that, a your, is that your experience of this world? Friends, these are all just hints from our universe that there's something outside the house. There's something more than just the phenomenal, what you can see and touch. But hints can't prove to us that the God of the Bible exists. Plenty of people will kind of look at all the hints and put them together and say, there must be a God. And the Bible says, Romans 1, that's a good conclusion. But who is that God? There is a God. Who is he? Tell me anything about him. We can't really agree. And the Bible says that we can know God like we know a friend. How on earth can all the hints in the universe let us know God like a friend? It can't. It's impossible. It's like me trying to say that I know Napoleon like a friend. He's in a different dimension. You know, he's in a different time. God is in a different dimension. We can't know him like a friend. It's impossible. What are we all doing here? It's impossible. Unless. Unless. God crosses over. It's impossible unless God makes the first move. Here we are in a phenomenal world. We can't cross over there to God. What if he makes the first move? What if he crosses over to us? You see, friends, that's exactly what the Bible says has happened. It says that God has actually entered into the phenomenal world. He's, he's broken into the house so that we can know him. He's not just kind of sent some angels across. Go on, angels. He's not just kind of done some powerful stuff. Power. You know, he hasn't, he's like, the Bible says that in the person of Jesus, God himself takes on flesh and we can know him. So, the passage we read a little earlier from Colossians said that God is invisible. But what else did it go on to say? It said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the representation of God. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. And so our second point is this. Jesus shows us God conclusively. I mentioned John's gospel before. John actually, at the passage, begins by saying, no one has ever seen God, but it goes on like this. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son... That's talking about Jesus. And a moment ago, it said Jesus was God. So the one and only Son of God, who is in the Father's bosom, he has revealed God. He has explained God. If you want to get to know God, you need to look at Jesus. That's the claim of the Bible. So towards the end of Jesus' life, one of his mates, Philip, came up to him and said, Jesus, could you just show us God the Father? And Jesus said, Philip, buddy, have I known you for so long and you haven't understood, you haven't known me? Whoever sees me sees the Father. If we want to know anything about God, if we want to 
touch on questions about God, we need to look at Jesus. And that's why my big aim is to encourage you to explore Jesus. Now, I realize I've skipped a step here. Jesus turns up and says, I'm God, therefore there must be a God. But we've got to prove that he's God, right? Can't just take him at his word. But you know what, friends? That's very tricky. It's very hard to do that. Because how do you recognize God when you don't know him? Have you ever done that thing where where you've arranged to meet someone that you've never met before? And you arrange to meet in this particular location, Gloria Jeans or something, and you turn up, you get there, and you're like, hang on a second, I have no idea what they look like. Have you done that? And you realize that you've got this imaginary picture in your head of what they look like, and you suddenly realize, actually, that's imaginary. Have you done that? It's quite awkward. You meet them and you go, whoops, I thought you were going to be tall and thin. Anyway, that's all right. But, but we like that with God. You see, how are we going to know what God looks like? How are we going to know what to expect, what he's like? We don't know him. So we create these imaginary ideas in our head of what God should be like. And when Jesus turns up, God crosses over. We don't recognize Jesus. We, do, we don't recognize him because he doesn't fit our imaginary picture. But the question is, how can we say what God should look like when we don't know him? If we actually had Bible expectations of what God would be like, then maybe we would recognize him in Jesus. Because the Old Testament tells us all these things about God and what he's like and what he does. And when Jesus turns up, he completely fits the bill. God creates, Jesus creates. God judges, Jesus judges. He does miracles, he rescues, he is worshipped like God, he suffers like God. But what are you expecting God would look like? What are you expecting he will be like? What would he have to do to make you say, ah, I see, I see now, you exist? What? A guy I know asked an atheist this question, what what would God have to do? And and the the guy said, well, he'd have to, um, if he could spell out the Ten Commandments in the night sky using stars, then I'd believe. What if God's not like that? What if that's just not what he's like? I want you to turn with me to that first reading from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1050 in your Bibles. I'm just looking at verse 21 and following. For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, that is using all our worldly cleverness, we couldn't really get at God. Since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews asked for signs. They wanted all those kind of pyrotechnic displays, the stars in the sky. And the Greeks seek wisdom. They want the very clever argument. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Quite frankly, it's offensive. And foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. You see, friends, we've got these worldly pictures of what God ought to be like. All power and cleverness. If God exists, then that's what he's going to be like. He's all power and cleverness. And when Jesus turns up, when you see him hanging on a cross, we don't see power and cleverness. But friends, that's how God's chosen to reveal himself. Let me ask you this. If there is a God, can't he reveal himself however he wants to? Isn't he kind of in charge of that? Does he have to reveal himself in the way you want him to or not? No, God has chosen to reveal himself as a simple Jewish carpenter. Strange as that seems. Foolish, weak as that seems. He's chosen to hang on a dirty old cross with nails in his wrists and his feet on an obscure little hill in a backwater Roman province. That is our God. I want to go back to Gloria Jeans for a second. You've uh, decided to go on a blind date. You've met someone on eHarmony. Um, they didn't have a profile picture, but their profile sounded pretty good, so you thought you'd check them out. So you're there at Gloria Jeans, and you're looking around. You don't know quite who to expect because you, know, you haven't met them, so you've got an imaginary picture in your head, and you're expecting that this guy is going to be hot because his name is God. So you get to Gloria Jeans, you're looking around, you're expecting that he's going to be like, poof, here I am. You know, it's going to be obvious. But you walk in the door and you look around and you're thinking, I can't see him. And then this very ordinary looking guy walks up to you and he's like, hey, how you going? Uh, I'm, I'm, it's me. And you're like, really? I was expecting someone a little uh, more, you know, what? Expecting someone more what? Nothing. <laughs> and so you get to talking. And you discover that this guy is more incredible than you could have ever imagined. And that imaginary picture you had in your head, that's all gone because the true picture is even more amazing. That's what it's like with Jesus. That's what it's like with God. Jesus presents a picture of God to us, which might not be what you expect. But you'll find it is more wonderful than you ever imagined. You look to Jesus and you find a God who is compassionate, who eats and drinks with the outcasts, a God who smacks down on the kind of arrogant, oppressive authorities, but binds up and restores the the weak and afflicted, who lives a life of perfect justice, dies a death of self-giving love for you and for me, and then rises with hope-giving glory. You realize that our God is wonderful, Friends, if there is a God, if it's possible, wouldn't you want him to be just like Jesus? The great romantic poet, very non-Christian, Lord Byron, once said, if God is not like Jesus Christ, he ought to be. He really ought to be. So friends, I just want to urge you to look at Jesus. I don't encourage you to take a look at the accounts of his life. Yes, I'm encouraging you to look at the Bible, that document that no one thinks is reliable, except the ancient historians and the experts in ancient manuscripts. That's, yes. 
I want to encourage you to look at the Bible and discover for yourself the person of Jesus. And ask yourself the question, if this guy is for real, does God exist? I think you'll find yourself, if if you come to the point when you say, yes, Jesus is for real, then the question, does God exist, is is a non-issue. So I encourage you to get, get into God's word. I mentioned before Christianity Explored, just six weeks, Monday nights, begins the 20th of April, just looking at an account of Jesus' life. Please do make a note on your Next Steps card or talk to me afterwards if you're interested in coming to that. We'd really love to see you there. Friends, I know I, I haven't really just proven God's existence to you, probably. I, um, I, I'm acutely aware of that. I, there's, there's loads and loads of clever arguments I could kind of list out for you here. But 1 Corinthians says that's not what you need. You don't need cleverness. You need to hear about Jesus. So that's what I've been talking about. Some of you might have roadblocks, things that are kind of stopping you from looking at Jesus and believing in God. Maybe it's intellectual issues, questions. That's fine. Ask away. We'd love to hear. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to deal with four more questions. But I want to finish by getting to this third point. And that is this. The biggest roadblock is our hearts. The biggest roadblock to us believing in God is our heart. We love to think that we're entirely rational creatures, don't we? We're we're totally logical. If it makes sense, I'll believe it. But then I find myself thinking, it takes 20 minutes to drive there. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. It'll take 15 minutes. You know, you go to the shops and you think, oh, I'd like to buy that. And then your brain goes, nah, too expensive, overpriced. It won't suit you. It probably won't work. But your heart goes, I want it. Buy it. I must have it. We think with our hearts a lot more than we realize. And the Bible says that's what's going on with God as well. You know, we, we don't actually want to believe that he exists. Because if he does, that just gets in the way of things. We don't want to believe that. And so back again in, in our readings from Corinthians, uh, sorry, from uh, um, Colossians, it says this. Once you were alienated from God, at a distance from you, you were alienated from God, and hostile in your minds towards him. There's this kind of resistance and hostility towards God because of your evil actions. We just want to do our own thing. And God's existence would just cramp our style. It would get in the way. We've talked about John a few times uh, tonight. John in chapter 3, Jesus actually says this. um, He says, the light has come into the world. He's talking about himself. The light has come into the world. But people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Just didn't want the idea of God. Back in 1931, a Belgian priest and astronomer, Georges Lemaitre, kicked off the idea of the Big Bang. It's actually a Christian idea. Um, He said that there must be a primeval atom that started the universe. Now his teacher from Cambridge, Arthur Eddington, thought that his theory was pretty sound, but he couldn't bear the idea. And he said, I do hope there's a genuine loophole. Why? 
Because back then, scientists, Einstein included, believed in an eternal universe. No beginning. Because then you don't need a God to kick it off. And that suits us. So in the 60s, when a bit more evidence came out for, for Lemaitre's theory, uh, one of the great scientists of the time, uh, Sir John Maddox, wrote this. This was his response. The idea of a beginning is thoroughly unacceptable. Why? Since it implies an ultimate origin of our world and gives Christians ample justification for their beliefs. Do you see the heart getting in the way of the facts there? This guy's a scientist. Friends, I want to say to you this evening, there is no need for your hearts and your fears to get in the way of the truth about God, the truth about Jesus. Don't let the fears stop you from looking to the cross because there you will meet a God who is wonderful and blows the fear away. A God who is gracious and humble and wants your good. Wouldn't it be good if he really was real? Don't get me wrong, he won't go on you know, letting you get away with this forever. He, he doesn't let you carry on ignoring him forever. Romans 1 says that his wrath is being revealed against those who just ignore him and reject the idea of his existence. So now is the time. Now is the time, not just to look at our universe and think, oh, God might be like this or that. Now is the time to look at the universe, get the hints, and let them point you to Jesus. You see, if you asked God one question, God, how do I know you exist? I think he would say, look at my son, Jesus. Can I encourage you to do that? Look at his son, Jesus. And like I've said, we'd love to help you with that.